You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. There's plenty to discuss in this week's show, as club and international cricket gear up for their imminent returns. But first of all, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that, free beer. We've teamed up with Beer52, the UK's most popular craft beer discovery club, to give you the opportunity to sub eight free craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is head to www.beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover the £4.95 postage fee, and the beers will be delivered to your doorstep. You get a magazine and a snack as part of the deal, and you can pause or cancel subscription at any time. Right then, on with the show. Yaz Rana has mysteriously taken a day off to coincide with pubs reopening, so I'm your host for today, Ben Gardner, and I'm joined by Wisdom.com Features Editor Taha Hashim, Wisdom Cricket Monthly Magazine Editor Joe Harmon, and, for the first time, Santoki Nagalendran, co-founder of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Santoki, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Hope you're all well and um, thanks for having me on your podcast. So before we get into our bumper England-West Indies Test Series preview, a couple of updates were around the game. Most importantly, club cricket is back. After much toing and froing and finger-pointing at the ball, the tees, the changing rooms, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has confirmed that recreational cricket can resume in England from Saturday, July the 11th. It's good news and obviously a relief to lots of club cricketers, though maybe it didn't need to be as fraught as it was. And a quick county update, it's been confirmed that in 2021, county will be allowed two overseas players, which come as a relief to plenty of players on Colpack deals. And Tim Bresnan has signed a two-year deal with Warwickshire. On to the tests, England have just announced a 13-strong squad to take on West Indies in that first game at the Aegeus Bowl. The group is Anderson, Archer, Bess, Broad, Burns, Butler, Crawley, Denley, Pope, Sibley, Stokes, who's captain, Wokes and Wood. Joe, what are your first impressions of that squad? Uh, there's quite a lot to unpick here, partly because they've picked so many reserves as well. So if we start with the actual 13 they have picked, uh, I suppose the headline selection is, is Don Bess as the, as the spinner ahead of Jack Leach and Moen Ali. It looked, the way the, the trial game went with Moen Ali not getting much of a bowl, it looked like he had fallen away in terms of who, who was in the mix. Uh, and then it looked like a kind of straight shootout between... Best and Leach, and I, I didn't have to. I didn't see a huge amount of the, the trial game because I was writing, and it's not particularly conducive when you've got no commentary to to be alerted to what's actually happening. But I, I heard that Best was the best of the spin bowlers, and 
we've also got to bear in mind that although it seems a very long time ago, he, he did bowl well in South Africa, and that was a good series win, albeit against a, a weakened South African side. Uh, and that should count for something. There should be some kind of continuity, and, and we've seen that with the with the batting as well, in that Zach Crawley and, and Joe Denley have have kept their places and are now in a straight shootout. That that Denley Crawley thing is quite interesting in itself because it's not so long ago that Denley was giving Crawley his Test cap, which he described to me as one of the proudest moments of his of his career so far. Uh, but it's no exaggeration to say that Crawley is probably one good score away from ending Joe Denley's career in the next Test. Um, which is brutal, but a kind of fascinating subplot to, to what should be a really interesting game all around. Bess's rise has really been remarkable, hasn't it? From being the fourth choice spinner before the South Africa series, behind Matt Parkinson and Jack Leach, and also sort of Moen Alley, to first choice now, and having played only two tests in that series. But you, you, you know, you say he's the man in possession, but it's not that long ago that Leach was the premier spinner, and he only missed out in South Africa because of illness. He's also been the number one spinner above Bess at Somerset in recent years. Why do you think he's now ahead of him in the England queue? Well, I think through no fault of his own, Leach's England career took a backward step. He obviously had a horrendous run of illness over the winter. So that, that hasn't helped. That's put him back. But also, Bess has really leapt forward. There were, even before he played in South Africa, he had some very positive reviews about how he'd, how he'd gone with the Lions, working with Dawson and um, I think it was Harath, wasn't it, as well? Um, and they really talked about how much his spin bowling had come on. And then he obviously let Brog, uh, Matt Parkinson in South Africa. Uh, and what he did really well in South Africa, which I think might have won him the selection over Leach here, is that he, he contained so well. And that's what Mo and Ali has struggled to do as England spinner. He's always taken wickets, got a fantastic strike rate. But he hasn't always been able to keep the runs down when they, when they need to. And with such a strong seam attack, there is an argument that your spinner should be the person that can can best dry up and then when necessary to give the quicks a rest to then come back and be explosive. And I think that, that might well have played a part in Bess's selection. Yeah, and especially with the likes of Joffrey Archer and Mark Wood, who are best used in short, sharp spells, even though England do have four seamers because of Ben Stokes, you do want a spinner who can hold up an end for an afternoon. You mentioned that there's no Moen Alley. The other noticeable absentee from that reserve squad is Johnny Bairstow. Dare we say it? Could we have seen the last revival room in Test cricket, Taha? Um, well, I think, I think it's quite... Um, it's quite interesting. I think um, I, I'm not sure what the regulations are or what, but um, I wonder if they're sort of thinking that Bairstow and Moeen are probably more just important in the white ball stuff right now. And so they they sort of have a, an eye on both of them then playing those Ireland matches where um, the squads might be are probably going to be quite inexperienced. Um, I mean, it's very hard to rule both, just say, put, draw a line under both because they both had lots of ups and downs in their test career and somehow managed to come back. Um, and I, I mean, it was, it was really interesting to best so completely out, especially when he sort of came in as, as an opener yesterday. I thought that was quite interesting. I'm kind of wondering what that actually meant. I mean, it might have not really meant anything because they were trying to make a game of it and Besto can go out and, and do his thing, what he does in, in white ball cricket. I mean, it'd be really sort of, yeah, I think I'd be, it'd be pretty, pretty, premature to just say that's kind of the end of their test careers. The problem with Besto is going to have is that he is such a crucial part of England's white ball sides that when's he going to get the opportunity to, to show that he is in good form against the red ball and win a test, test call up and the Jason Roy experiment showed how difficult it is uh, to just go from one day cricket into test cricket without having played the county championship cricket so Besto's got an uphill battle to come back from that. He's not too old but age is not on his side and also crucially the emergence of Dan Lawrence uh, is bad news for him in terms of in terms of England selection for 
for a long while yet because Lawrence is clearly the, the coming man. And yeah. I should say with, with Moeen as well, um, obviously Don Best bowled really well in that warm-up uh, and Moeen didn't bowl really well, uh, let's face it. But um, I do still think he's England's best test spinner and there's a tour of India coming up, a tour of Sri Lanka. I mean, I find it very hard to imagine that England won't be considering him. On the best Leach question, I'd seen suggestions that England might go with Leach because he's a left arm spinner and West Indies have a lot of right handers in their lineup. Santoku, do you think there'll be some relief in the West Indies camp that England have gone with Bess over Leach? Yeah, I think definitely they would have looked. They would have looked at that aspect. But our batsmen have been notoriously brittle, which I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss later on. So I think there shouldn't be that much relief that it is Don Best because he is a quality spinner. So they'll need to prepare for him in the right manner as well. I just think looking at that England bowling lineup, it's scary how much depth you sort of have. And I think the West Indies batsmen are in for a tough, tough test. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that fast bowling depth. England are going to have to pick two bowlers from Wood, Anderson, Broad, Archer and Wokes to leave out, which is going to be such a tough call. I'm going to put you all on the spot here. Joe, who would you go with? It's near enough impossible. I would say uh, there's always this conversation that comes around around this time that maybe Broad shouldn't play. I'm definitely not in that camp. For me, Broad and Anderson play first test, absolutely. Both got fantastic records at home. Both got fantastic records against the West Indies at home, particularly Anderson. Uh, so they're in. And then it's a, a straight shootout between Wood and Archer. And for me, it's really, I was told that Ar- Wood bowls slightly better in the trial than Archer. Um, but I would go, go on, partially on that, I would go on fitness. I would also map out which quicks they were planning on using for each test match. Um, I think that would be a good plan for England's. Obviously, that needs to be flexible, but that, to have a rough plan of how they're going to do that, given how quickly the test matches come. So, for me, I mean, I know I'm sitting on the fence here. It'd be Archer or Wood, um, and Wokes again through no fault of his own is is probably the outside bet as he as he often is. Um, but that's not to say that he wouldn't also do a fantastic job if he if he came in, and obviously also offers more with the bat than the other guys, which could work in his favour. Or they would have been more useful if they'd gone with Leach rather than Bess. Obviously, Bess being the stronger batsman means they don't need to worry about the batting skills of their fast bowlers quite as much. Do you think, though? I mean, Bess for me is a better batsman than Leach, but he's still an 8.5 maybe rather than a proper 8. And then Archer is a 9.5 and Broad and Anderson are both very much 11s. Even with Bess in there, it's still a long tail. It, it is longer than I would like. I, I would say... 8.5 is maybe a little bit harsh on, but I know he didn't back well in South Africa, but he's, he's certainly, I think he could get up to an eight, maybe even a 7.5 in a few years time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's longer than they would like. Uh, I think it's probably something that they're less fussed about against the West Indies. Now, maybe that's, maybe that's complacent uh, on my part or their part. Um, but it's certainly, They'd probably they'd be less fussed about it in this series than they would be going into play Australia or India. I think is that how you see it, Taha? Or would you be tempted to go for Wood and Archer and unleash both the quicks? I mean, I would I would really love to see Wood and Archer both together, but I mean, it's in England. It doesn't you know it doesn't really make that much sense. I mean, Joe made a really good point about what what Australia did last summer. They were just sort of. They manage their bowlers really well. I mean, people are asking where Mitchell Stark is because obviously you look at him bowl 90 miles per hour, really quick. He's going to just run through sides. That's obviously not the case. Um, you have to think practically when you're in England. Um, and yeah, so it will be Anderson and Broad. I think that's pretty certain. And then um, I would probably, 
<laughs> yeah, I'll just do what Joe did. I'll sit on the fence between uh, either either Wood or Archer. Um, and yeah, I, I don't really see any problems with Donbass at eight. I, I'm not. I wouldn't be too worried about that. I think he's a he's shown himself as a pretty decent bat um, in his in his few test appearances. So yeah, I don't see really any problem with that. Um, and Santaik, you're on the on the Archer Wood thing. It feels like a lot of the build up, probably too much of it, is focused on obviously Joffre Archer having played for West Indies under 19, sort of grown up there. Mm. Do you think uh, there's almost a thing like you, you, you'd, you'd ignore Wood because of that? And Wood's obviously, you know, he, that's where he restarts his test career, basically, in, in St. Lucia. Um, do you, is, could that be a reason to go Wood over Archer? Um, not necessarily. I think Archer's just, Archer's just such a good bowler and his pace will, will rattle the West Indies batting lineup. I think I would go with Archer personally. I think West Indies in particular have brought along O'Shane Thomas, even though, in my opinion, he's not ready for test cricket at this moment. The reason they've brought him along in the reserve squad is because he's the bowler who most resembles Archer's sort of menacing pace. So they brought O'Shane Thomas to prepare for the fact and the likelihood that Archer will start in the first test. Well, Santoki, can I just, can I just start as a, as a West Indies fan, mm. which, which England bowler would you like to see left out? Who, who do you most fear out of that attack? Because obviously we talk about the pace of Wooden Archer, but there's a lot more to, to bowling than pace and Anderson's done particularly well. I, against think, I think Anderson, West Indies would be glad not to see Anderson start. I just think... Um, his, his consistency and just the fact that he'll have a point to prove because there have been question marks over his sort of age and career at this point. It seems that, I mean, I, I quite enjoyed watching the bits of the Intercord warm-up that I watched. And Tara, I know you spent quite a lot of the time glued to that, that grainy two-camera live stream the ECB had. Uh, what, what do you make of them kind of uh, as a concept? Because, of course, you also went to the Australia, Australia A1 last year, didn't you, as well? I mean, uh, it's going to sound really ungrateful because we've not had cricket for a while, but I did find that first day quite a tough watch. <laughs> Um, the pitch, the pitch was quite slow. Uh, you know, everyone's understandably quite rusty. Um, so the bowling wasn't, you know, totally up to scratch. I think the best bowler on the first day was sort of Craig Overton, um, who's kind of just quite reliable with his with his line and length. And it wasn't, you know, he didn't reset the the pulse racing. But I mean, by the end of the third day, you know, it did get quite good. You know, Ben Stokes sort of teeing off against, you know, spinners that he he probably has to protect as a captain. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the standard is obviously much greater than you'd get in any warm-up game, but obviously you're not going to take... I mean, I, I can't see this happening, you know, much again. I mean, you're not, you're not going to take 22 players on a, on a tour, are you? So, um, it was kind of, kind of a one-off. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was quite nice just seeing, you know, I don't know, Jeffrey Archer bowl against Dom Sibley. I mean, that's, you know, just, yeah. It was quite. It was yeah, and 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 you made the, you know, you mentioned the point earlier about um, uh, Archer t- sort of targeting Sibley and then having sort of like a leg, a leg gully in there almost. You know, like it's it's, it's quite telling when your own teammates are sort of trying to exploit your weakness. So I thought that was quite interesting too. because I mean, it's not that uncommon perhaps that you might get a Lions tour alongside an England tour because and especially when they go to Australia, they kind of they line them up alongside each other so they have sort of a pack of reserves they can call upon but so what I guess what um, do, do you not the competitive nature of it do you think that that's a, like almost like a hindrance like uh, the fact that you you know you, like it almost presents problems if someone who's not really in the frame puts up a really good performance then all of a sudden you've got like you know more players you've got to have difficult conversations with in the way I mean I don't know if that's really a problem That I mean that can be quite a 
a bit of a blessing in disguise sometimes. I mean, there's there's that famous 2010 game in uh, in Abu Dhabi, I think, when uh, what was it Keyswetter and Lum for the Lions uh, did really well against England and then got put into the 2010 World T20 squad. So I, I don't see I don't see why that would sort of be a problem to selectors or something. I think it was quite interesting with the squad. I feel like um, it's sort of England had sort of settled on that they're going to rely on the guys who did well in South Africa. And the guys who did well in the warm-ups have been sort of rewarded with places in, in the reserves. So like um, James Bracey did did really well on that first day. Ollie Robinson, Ollie Robinson bowled really well. So he's obviously in the reserves. And um, was Dan Lawrence as well, yeah. Yeah, and the, the conditions, I, I, I thought that they were interesting as well because it did seem quite slow and low and, you know, the ball not really getting through to the keeper and that sort of thing. And obviously it'll be a different actual strip for... For the for the, the actual test match, but that could be a sign of things to come. Who would that favour? Do you think, Joe? Um, it's a little bit tricky to say. I, I suppose, in one sense, you'd, you'd think a, a flat pitch would suit the West Indies. You kind of remove the typical English conditions which the West Indies have struggled with uh, over the last what we're talking kind of twenty years now, thirty years uh, in England. That said, I kind of feel like West Indies' best chance is a really low-scoring match where they just where everyone gets bundled out twice, and West Indies just do it to England slightly better than England did it to West Indies. So it, it is really hard to tell. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the West Indies batsmen who have struggled over here would be dying for a flat pitch to get themselves into the series and and actually <clears throat> score some consistent runs because that. I mean, Santos, you can get, can tell us in more detail, but there's. The players that stand out, I mean, Hope and, and Brathwaite, who were so brilliant over here last time, and they, they really struggled runs. I saw Hope hasn't scored a Test 100 since that innings at, at Headingley, which for a, a player of his ability is, uh, is astonishing, really. I know they haven't played all that many Test matches, but they've, they've played enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Hope, as you said, the only two centuries he scored in his career, Test career, have been in that test match at Headingley. Um, and I completely agree with what you said. I think um, West Indies' best chances are a pitch where they can bundle England out for a low score and kind of capitalise on that, which is what they've done against in their last test against Afghanistan. I don't necessarily think a flat pitch would favour them just because it's hard to know whether the batsmen would be able to make the most of it and put up a big score because they've really struggled um, to hit more than 300 in the past two years. And um, you mentioned Breathweight as well. The last two years, he's averaged 11, which in any other side would mean he'd be dropped from, from the team. But yeah. that kind of highlights the lack of viable options up until now for that opener slot in the team. Yeah, because I, I was looking just through all their career averages. No one in that West Indies squad, I think, averages more than 35 with the bat. I mean... Uh, obviously it's quite hard to sum up but, but why, why is that why, why have they struggled so much to, to find batsmen and why have the ones who've come in and looked good for a time not managed to kick on I think, I think the fundamental answer to that question is basically West Indies embarked on a project in 2015 when they appointed Jason Holder to build a young squad to develop for the next five or ten years together so you've got the likes of Holder Shy Hope Dowich Chase all coming together Hetmeyer all coming together. The problem is in that period since since 2014, so just before Holder took over, you've had Chris Gale, Dennis Randin, Marlon Samuels, Shivnarayan Chanderpool, um, Jerome Taylor all be dropped or leave the test squad. So there's been a real lack of experience and it's been hard for the bowlers to kind of 
gain they've kind of been learning on a job learning on the job without anyone to kind of guide them also you look at someone like Darren Bravo who would be the natural person to provide that experience he was omitted from the team for two years for refusing to take down a tweet so there's been a lot of drama and I think the lack of experience has really hurt this side in putting together big averages consistently yeah so d- despite their sort of struggles it sort of feels a bit like the Western East still have kind of a, a settled lineup because there's not been that many players putting up their hands from outside I know one guy that you on the Caribbean cricket pod are quite fond of is uh, Joshua De Silva um, and he had a, a brilliant warm-up game uh, carried his bat for 133 out in the first innings, scored an unbeaten 56 out in the second innings. Uh, and it seems like John Campbell, who had a decent series against England, I remember, last time out, but he struggled a bit for form so far. He's got no 50s and two single-figure scores. Is that is that the most likely sort of... Is, is that the biggest question they have over their side heading into the first test? I would say Craig Vathwaite's probably the biggest question at the moment, just because, as I said, he averages 11 in the past two years. With John Campbell, he's only played six tests, so the jury is out on him. He does need to put put a big score together because, as you said, he's been good but never great in that opening position. And now with you've got the likes of Joshua De Silva coming in, who's had a fantastic regional season, averaged 50. He's coming in. He's pressed his case in the warm-up games. Um, and so there will be pressure on both openers. But I think if you had to pick out of the two, then it would be Brathwaite that would be dropped first, in my opinion. Um, and I think, as you said earlier, the, the top, the top um, batting order is pretty settled. Um, I think this can be reflected in the fact that during the warm-up match, the four-day one we had, um, Phil Simmons opted to have the reserve batsman play against the reserve bowlers rather than the first-team batsmen and first-team bowlers, which suggests that he was happy with the squad going into the first test and was just looking at what team, what players in the reserve squad can kind of put their case forward to be selected, possibly for the third test if needs be, because Simmons has said in press conferences that the first two tests, he won't bring anyone in from the reserve squad, but if needs be for the third test, he is willing to do that. Tell, tell us a bit about the Silver, because he, he was a new name to me before this tour. And I'm just looking over a few scorecards. It looked like he's, he's a middle-order batsman in first-class cricket generally, right? Yeah, so um, what happened is he made his debut for Trinidad and Tobago in the 2018-19 season. He had a problem with fitness. He had to lose a lot of weight. Um, and he came back in the Super 50 last year with the West Indies Emerging Stars. So that was a team built up of the young, young talent who couldn't make their regional sides. They ended up winning the Super 50, so the 50-over regional tournament, against all odds. The Silver scored a brilliant century in that and carried it forward into the regional season starting in January. So his first match against Jamaica, he, he hit a century. As you said, he bats number five because he is a wicketkeeper. However, in, Trin- in Trinidad and Tobago, Dennis Randon is still the number one wicketkeeper. So when Randon did return from West Indies duty, Randon slotted in at five and De Silva opened, but it was a seamless transition. He seems to play well in both positions. When, when we spoke to him on our podcast last week, he did say he's happy to open as well. So he is an option. And I think it is likely especially if the West Indies openers don't put together scores in the first two tests, that we will see De Silva in the final test, mainly because of that brilliant century he scored in the warm-up. Mm. Um, and in the second innings, he was unbeaten as well. So he has put his case forward. And has he, he's played a bit of club cricket as well in the UK, has he? And that- he, got a, he actually got a scholarship with his club in Trinidad and Tobago. So he played for Old Wimbledonians um, in Surrey, Surrey Club League, and he played well there. And that, I think that's kind of helped him because he's, He's not phased by the conditions. It's not new for him to play in England. He, done, he played two seasons for Old Wimbledonians. So he's kind of adapted really well to English conditions. And I've, as I said, I do think we will see him at some point in the series. And the, the other two names, which I think might be new to 
English fans is uh, Shamar Brooks and Raheem Cornwall, I think, because I think that those are the two that haven't, that weren't, that didn't feature in the series last time. Uh, tell us a bit about about them and their sort of uh, their strengths and what they bring to the table. So Shamar Shamar Brooks is kind of a veteran on the domestic scene. He came in he came into the West Indies squad against India last year. He's he's performed reasonably well in the last test against Afghanistan. He did score a century. Um, he I wouldn't say he's a long term prospect in the team, but he is someone who's kind of got a bit of experience playing ten years in regional cricket. And he so he's someone that they will look for the next for the next year or two. I'd imagine he'd hold that number four position. Um, and obviously, Raheem Cornwall grabs the, grabs the headlines because of his size and height. I think he's six six or six seven. Um, very big guy, unorthodox for a spinner. However, unfortunately, unfortunately, despite his talent, I don't think he'll actually play in the first test, partly because Shannon Gabriel's proved his fitness. And I think the West Indies will go for a four-pace attack of Gabriel, Roach, Alzari Joseph and Jason Holder, rather than Raheem Cornwall. So whilst Raheem Cornwall did get a 10-wicket haul in the last test in India against Afghanistan, I don't actually think we'll see him in the first test at Southampton. And Toki, one of the, one of the things that often strikes me about um, West Indies batsmen, new names that come into the side, you look at their first class record and they're, they're often not very much to shout about. Like Brooks, I think, averages 31 in first class cricket. John Campbell, I think, is only 30. Um, mm. Is that a reflection on the state of the pitches in the Caribbean? Is that a reflection on the state of batting in general? And are there players with higher averages that aren't getting included? So I think, as you said, traditionally, it's, I, I would say it's down to the batting. There hasn't been a great depth of batting in West Indies for the past few years um the pitches have generally been flat if you look up and up until this season generally spinners have taken the most wickets in regional cricket the likes of Virasami, Pamor, Nikita Miller, Devendra Bishu they've they've been the frequent wicket takers so it has been conducive it has been conducive to batting in in the West Indies but I think you have seen a new crop sort of emerge so Josh De Silva you've also got Nakuma Bonner who's in the who's in the test squad who averaged 58 for Jamaica playing a full season. So he's coming through as well. You've got Shane Mosley as well as another opener option. So you are seeing a young crop of batsmen, all under 25, who were sort of proving their worth on the regional scene. And I think a good comparison is Craig Bathwaite did play the full season for Barbados and he was the 10th highest scorer. He averaged 33. So he's struggling against this young crop of um, batsmen coming through. Hmm. That's interesting. So I, I actually thought they might go Jason Holder at six and then allow, that allows to play Cornwall so who, who do you think will sort of fill in at six presuming that sort of uh, Chase, Hope, Brooks, Campbell and Brathwaite are all kind of inked in will it be Brath, uh, Blackwood? Yeah so it will, I would say Blackwood would slot in at five um, just because you can't leave him out um, he averaged he averaged 51 for Jamaica. He was the top run scorer by a mile in domestic cricket. His last first-class game, he hit 248. So based on that, if the West Indies coaching side and the cricket board want to show faith in a domestic system, you have to put Blackwood in because he's done all that's asked from him. So I would have him at five, Chase at six, Dowrich at seven, Holder at eight. And as we said, the, the top order has been so brittle in the past two years. It has been Chase, Dowrich and Holder who have kind of saved the innings. The other thing with Blackwood, he's, he's a speciality England test batsman, right, isn't he? The, uh, I think he averages 55 against England and 24 against everyone else. So, got up Yeah, and he's, right? he's very attacking as well. I would say he's, he's almost a like-for-like replacement in, in an attacking sense for Shimon Hetmeyer, who did sadly opt out of the tour. Yeah, and, and, and Blackwood being an attacking batsman could be key for those low-scoring shootouts as in 2014 when they tied that series and he was player of the match when he scored his first test 100. And I think... 
that bowling attack that West Indies have got is also really primed for that sort of contest. I mean, Azari Joseph, Shannon Gabriel, Kim Rock, Jason Holder, as you said, they blew England away uh, twice in in two tests at the start of last year. And they'll fancy it against the top six where only one player's got only 15 tests to their name that England will probably name. Um, that's Is that going to be the defining battle of the of the series, do you think, really? Definitely. I think there's been a lot of spotlight on West Indies um, bowling unit, and rightly so, because I think there's a nice balance. So you've kind of got Holder and Roach who provide the control and consistency. Holder in particular, he can provide that swing. And then that just allows Gabriel and Joseph to attack with their pace. So I think you've got a nice balance. The only concern I would have is obviously with Gabriel, Roach and Joseph, they have been injury plagued throughout their careers. So I don't know whether they would be able to play necessarily three tests or if they would be able to carry a large workload. Um, but if all four are fully fit and they can play, it will be a big concern for England. And I think that will be where the test is won for West Indies, whether they can rattle England out for scores of under 250. Which way do you see that, that kind of battle going? Cause, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a talented top six, but it's not an experienced one. Do you think England kind of have what it takes to keep, keep that out? I think, I think definitely England has got the quality um, to kind of put a big score against this bowling lineup. But I think West Indies have got experience. You've got Gabriel and Roach who have been on tours before. Roach in particular has been successful in England. Alzari Joseph, while he hasn't played much tests in the ODI series against England, I think in 2017, he did do really well with the white ball on English pitches, especially at the oval. So I think Alzari Joseph is someone who will step up in this test. And then Jason Holder, who's obviously, um, as has been mentioned in the media a lot this week, is number one all-rounder in the world at the moment. Um, he bought, he's, his average is 14 with the ball and he averages 42 with the bat. So Holder's going to be a threat, especially with his consistency. So I think England definitely have the capabilities because there's a lot of depth in that squad and these are good quality batsmen at the end of the day. But I do think in the, fir- the first innings against that West Indies bowling lineup will define the series. If West Indies can make, make a mark and kind of lower that confidence of the batsmen, put some doubts in their mind, then we'll have a contest of the series. Yeah, I mean, I think... All England fans, I think, would say they would be not in the least bit surprised if England find themselves 30 for three on the first morning. Um, but equally, might still consider England's uh, favourites from that position to come back, yeah. and, come back and win. That's sort of just the way England play their cricket. Uh, and so much obviously hinges on, on Ben Stokes at five and, and Pope at six. That, mm. that middle order has already become crucial, particularly with Root not there at, um, at four in this test match. Yeah, I was going to mention, I mean, uh, especially look at the, the last series between the two teams uh, last year when um, England got blown away in the first test. It kind of, it looked like the, they were still feeling the effects of that in the second test where they, I think they lost by 10 wickets. Um, so, it's that, yeah, you know, West Indies should definitely look at that first test as, as a massive opportunity with, um, with Joe Root out. Um, and then you've got sort of the, a top four that is shown glimpses, but is still not like... You know, if if that West Indies attack, I don't think they'd be, you know, overly phased by it. That there's some good players in that England top four, but West Indies would definitely those those pace bowlers would definitely fancy their chances. I think I think um, West Indies and England sort of mirror each other in that regard because even that test you referenced um, in the West Indies in 2019, when we did win the first test, in the second innings we were 61 for five before Holder hit a brilliant double century and Dalwich came in with a century, and then in the final test which we lost to England, um, we were 71 for six, 71, 76 for five. So I think both sides sort of mirror each other in terms of uh, in terms of batting collapses. Yeah, and and the other area they obviously mirror each other is having two of the best fast bowling all-rounds in the world in 
Jason Holder and Ben Stokes, also both captains for this test. Um, I mean, it's, it's in a way it's not a battle because they're not, it's not as if one is pissed against the other, but could it kind of be a thing where see each side's kind of best player, how they do could kind of decide how it goes? I mean, it's also just exciting to watch, isn't it? Having two of the best kind of strike that stuff. Well, it's the kind of media cliche, isn't it? That you, you, put the, you pitch the best two players against each other and as though that's how the series is going to go. But I think in this instance, uh, it's actually more true than it is in, in most because they are so important to their teams and also because of the absence of, of Root as well. Stokes takes on more importance as, as a batsman, but obviously also uh, as a captain now as well. I mean, Stokes, I don't, I don't know how much he goes in for kind of personal rivalry things. It's not really his style, but Holder obviously won the matchup uh, in the Caribbean last time. So it is kind of over to, to Stokes to return um, from that. And, and if any, I mean, his batting stats since then, I think he's averaging 50 with the bat since that series defeat in the West Indies. Um, he, well, he's England's form batsman. Uh, and I just feel like the captain, I'm not saying it's up to debate whether he's, he's a good long-term option or not. I'm a little bit um, unsure on that, but I do feel like certainly in the short term, the captaincy will really bring the, the best out in him as well. He just feels like that, that kind of player that, every extra bit of responsibility always seems to kind of bring the best out of him. Yeah, especially for me, the, the ideal scenario for him is the one-off test as captain. He doesn't really have to deal with all the the extra stuff, you know, the the, the added scrutiny that much, the, uh, you know, the uh, the dealing with the media to, to, to a too great an extent. He can just basically be the on-field talisman, but even more so. And I think that is basically the perfect scenario for him to, to do well. And, and they will really need him because... As you, you, you've all said, kind of that first test, if England do sort of if, if England do collapse as they might well do, that could easily set it up for West Indies then just need to win one of the next two, and then England starts start to get a bit twitchy, and all of a sudden you've got kind of a shock on your hands. So it's uh, like obviously the first the first test is always crucial, but especially in this instance, isn't it? Yeah, particularly when the second test rolls around so quickly, and then the third test after that, it's very hard to to recover. There's no first class game you can go and someone racks up hundred and gains some confidence. Uh, if West Indies did get steamrolled in the first test, it could end up being uh, quite a demoralising series. Whereas I think England would probably fancy their chances of being able to come back uh, a bit more easily, particularly with Root to return. Should we, uh, should we, should we pick some score lines then? I know we've, uh, we've all said it's very hard to predict, but um, Taha, should we start with you? What, 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 what do you think? Which way is it going to go? I'll go 2-0 I'll go England. Well, I don't, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I can't see West Indies getting a series win just because we lack that consistency. But I think there is enough brilliance in the side to win one test, so I'll go with 2-1 England. I think matching up that England pace attack against that West Indies batting lineup, however good that West Indies pace attack is, I think it's going to be tough for them. So I'm going 3-0 England. Sorry, Santoki. <laughs> no offence taken yeah I, I wanted to try and drum up sort of a bit of contest and I think it will be a really good really watchable series but I, I think that that is going to decide it basically and I, I do actually I think that England's top four with the three openers and Joe Denny who can obviously last a long time they might not get a lot of runs but I, I kind of see that you know England will kind of be two down at lunch and then like sort of four down at tea and then the platform will have been laid I think that's the way it will go for me personally so I think I'm personally going three in England as well Although, to qualify my own prediction, England don't win three test matches in a row very often. They're not that, they're not that type of side. They're not a consistent line-up yet. And that's why, 
you hear the odd thing about kind of preparing for winter tours of India or even Australia. I don't think England's at anywhere near a position where they can start thinking beyond the series they're currently playing. They've just got to try and win what that match that's ahead of them. Um, and I'm sure the England camp don't aren't thinking that way. I don't think they should be anyway. Because um, what well, West Indies showed on their last visit here that they can certainly pull off a win, and they showed in the Caribbean that they can they can beat this England side over a series. Yeah, they, they did, of course, win their last three tests in a row. But you're right that uh, that sort of thing is generally alluded. Yeah. How am I expected to remember those? Those were ages. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is actually an interesting point, though, isn't it? That England have um, important series coming up, and while ordinarily they could kind of take these tests as their kind of own thing, we don't yet know what sort of counter cricket will be played this summer. So someone like Dan Lawrence say this might well be the only significant first-class cricket you could get the chance to play is in these tests. Do you, do you think that could come into their point, into their thinking maybe for the for the third test? Because they'll, they'll obviously still be World Test Championship Series points on the line. But do you think that if they are 2-0 up, they might well want to blood quite a few players it, with the thinking that they need to see how good these guys are before India and they might not get any other chance really? Possibly come the third test. If England are up, I wouldn't want to start looking too far ahead in that sense. But I think it, a lot of it comes back again to... Joe Denley needs a really big series here if he's still going to be a test player come, come the Pakistan series because he's now under under attack from so many different points because it's not just a playoff between him and Crawley in this match, which it is. But then beyond that, you've got Lawrence, who I think it's fair to say clearly has a higher ceiling than Denley and obviously ages on Lawrence's side. Um, so all it will take is a couple of failures and, and that kind of call for Denley to call his time to call time on his test career will will really be heightened and to, I mean I think it's probably 50-50 split already of people who think Denny shouldn't be playing test cricket for England probably maybe even more in favour of, of him not playing test cricket for England and I know certainly Phil writing for wisdom.com yesterday was saying that it's time for Lawrence oh, to be fair Phil's been saying Lawrence should come in for ages before he's even scoring runs but but now he's sort of I can I can see his point and it, it, this is obviously a good series to, to blood Lawrence there's also the element with no, no we haven't actually talked about the fact that there'll be no crowd there as yet um, uh, and what effect that might have it it's hard to know this is kind of uh, psychology which I don't know much about but if, 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 in theory you'd think it might be easy to make a test debut when it feels like uh, there's no crowd there's no pressure you can play almost as a county game um, so in that sense it would be quite a good series to bed Lawrence in should that opportunity arise later in the series yeah and Tar, do you feel it is as simple as a straight shootout between Crawley and Denny? Do you think it, it? Do either of them have any sort of credit in the bank, or is it just who performs better in the first test will be the guy that gets picked when Joe is back? Well, uh, I mean, I'm quite interested to see um, whether Denley um, bats at three or four. I think that actually kind of affects things. Like if he bats at if he bats at four, then that almost feels like it's you're here for a test and then, you know, Joe Root comes back in and then we blood in uh, Crawley. I think, I think Crawley's got a lot more credit in the back than Denley. Um, he did quite well as an opener in South Africa. Um, and, and he's obviously the young man. And, you know, I imagine that's, you know, he's, he's got a lot more time and, you know, he's someone England can invest in. I think with Joe Denley now, I think, in a way, he's actually very reliable. You know exactly what you're going to get. He's going to soak up a lot of balls. He takes a lot of time to get in. 
Um, but he then does leave. It, it, it does really benefit the guys that, that come in after him. Um, you kind of saw that on uh, in, in the in the warm up in, in in his first innings as well, where he kind of he played his his, his dentry, as they say, um, and then the guys after him, you know, uh, looks pretty comfortable. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a straight shootout. I think there's a lot more credit in the bank for Crawley than there is Denley. I think Denley is is quite under the pump. Um, but he's obviously, he, but at the same time, he has done a really, he's done a decent job for England um, over the last year, I think, which yeah, well, should be mentioned. What I will say, I think, when whenever the time comes that Denley's Test career is deemed over, I think he will be missed more than a lot of people uh, think at the moment. Uh, I think he's he's been invaluable for England over the last year, even if the numbers don't necessarily back that up. Yeah, I, I actually get a weirdly similar sort of feeling of comfort from it as I sort of did from from Jonathan Trott like you, you always feel like he is going to stave off the collapse that if one of the openers goes early like Denley is unlikely to follow and like obviously he's not the same caliber of a player but he, he yeah he has given England a sense of security that I think you're, you're right will be will be missed quite a lot right I think I think that's quite quite a good place to uh to end it uh I'm very excited for the first test I hope that <laughs> you guys all are and I look forward to speaking to you hopefully all of you throughout the series at some point this has been the, uh, the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, please tell your friends and subscribe on the app of your choice. If you've really liked it, leave us a nice five-star review on the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.